Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Human Factors Cast. It is episode 199. Uh, I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined by Mr. Blake Arnsdorf. Absolutely. How are you doing today, Nick? I've been better. My jaw is kind of killing me, but that's okay. We'll get through it. <laughs> we'll make it through. Anyone who joined us on Office Hours or the pre-show knows why. Uh, we will make it through the show tonight. Uh, we got a great news story uh, that we're going to be taking um, you know, a look at here. Rad-ass exoskeletons, as the article put it, puts it, using AI to walk for you. So we're going to be looking at that. Um, hey, everyone. I don't know if you noticed, but at the top here, I said uh, this was episode 199. Um, next week is our 200th episode. If you're listening to this, um, please tune in. We have some really exciting announcements. Uh, it's going to be wild. I think, um, we have a lot of surprises planned. Uh, you know, we kind of went big for episode 100 and like the live show and, um, or not live, but we went to YouTube and it was pre-recorded and it was something. Um, but you know, episode 200 is going to be, uh, a lot. There's <laughs> a lot of announcements there. So if, um, you know, if you're listening, you should you should probably check that out. Uh, if there's one show you listen to, in fact, if you don't want to listen to, if you can only listen to one show over the next month, listen to that one. So if you know, if this is part of your time right now, maybe you know you can stop listening into this and just check out episode 200. <laughs> That's okay too. Uh, it doesn't much matter, but be here for episode 200. There's some really cool stuff that I'm really excited to share with you all. Um, our patrons have kind of been in on some of the secrets, but even some will be. Uh, a surprise to them. Um, all right. So, uh, Blake, I got to know what's going on with you. Man, it's been a long week, and I'm glad that we finally made it to Thursday where we can hang on the internet and talk about podcast things or talk about human factors, UX design, all that kind of good stuff. One thing that I found really interesting and fun this week um, was I'm a. So, I've talked about it a few times in my banner section now. I've been doing a lot more. Um, kind of getting back into music and production of audio and stuff like that over the past year due to COVID being at home more. Uh, but one thing that I f- saw like come across my LinkedIn page, I think on Monday was I'm a big fan of native instruments. And for anybody who doesn't know, they're one of the bigger companies probably in the music world that makes virtual instruments as well as hardware instruments and have some of the biggest libraries out there. But they're also known for taking design into consideration when they're putting def- putting together different software packages and really putting user experience first. And that also includes accessibility design. So one thing that they have really ramped up, I think in Complete Control 2.6, is adding more accessibility tools for blind users. So if you can imagine, if, or if you're aware of like screen readers, right? So pieces of software that can help somebody navigate, you know, a browser or any kind of application by giving them a, an idea of what they're hovering over or anything like that. Well, translate that to audio production or sound production. Um, and in this case, what they've done is for complete control, it's their bigger you know, virtual instrument library. And basically what you would do is you can kind of attach your keyboard and play different sounds that they offer. Well, now the the complete control software has accessibility features that as you, as you navigate around um, the screen using your screen reader, it will give you a sense of what the sound will be. And so the samples are a lot more, a lot easier to find if you're, you know, a blind user or a low vision user. So it was a, it was just a fun story. And it's one of those times where it's, it's cool to, know how many different walks of life and different um, industries employ human factors and good design practices to help create products that are not just made for everybody, the everyday person, but kind of facilitate people of different, you know, accessibility needs. So it was just a fun one to kick the week off with. Yeah. You know, I love talking about accessibility and I think that was a great foreshadowing or potentially foreshadowing for, uh, what could be next week's episode if our patrons are listening or if you want to become a patron, um, you know, we do let them choose the news for the for the show. You know, it's, it's chosen by them. Uh, we have <laughs> one of the stories up on um, for, for next week. Our episode 200 is um, neuroscientists unveiling technology for the vision impaired. So things like bionic eyes, textured tablets, those types of things. It'd be a ton of fun to talk 
talk about that. So if our patrons are listening, uh, is this is this like voter manipulation? I don't know. Anyway, the the point is that would be a ton of fun to talk about on our 200th episode. So, uh, you know, that's I'll just leave that there. <laughs> Maybe we just put it in our back pocket yeah. and do like a short blurb on it Maybe. if they don't like it. Yeah. I, oh, man. It, it could be a ton of fun and it would link into what you just said there, uh, Blake. Um, but I, man, I got to tell you, my my week has been going. Um, it's It's been something. Uh, and I have to talk about um, this thing. And I am purposely not saying what it is on the audio version. <laughs> but this thing here, uh, there's... Um, there's a product. Oh, now it all makes more sense to me. All right. <laughs> there's a product that uh, it's okay. There's there's an audio component that will go with this. Don't you worry, everyone. Um, there is a product in which I purchased uh, to relieve some pain this week, and um, you know the the instructions on the box are pretty terrible. Um, have you ever had to look up instructions? For something that were uh, for a product that was just you know didn't come with the adequate explanation for what to do with it. Uh, definitely. So I've got like my <laughs> drum kit. Yeah. I don't know that that stuff reads like stereo instructions that you need two eight two PhDs to understand. So I I like default going to YouTube videos for a lot of stuff like that. But something as simple as what you showed, yeah. I would I would hope that the instructions were straightforward. Mm, no, they were not. Um, so, so what I'm talking about is a mouth guard cause I'm experiencing some jaw pain and, um, here's the auditory cue for you all listening on the podcast. <laughs> uh, so, ah! here, so I keep doing this. I don't know. <laughs> there we go. That's, that's your new host. So here's the thing. Uh, no, I can't do it. Uh, here's the, here's the thing with, with this product, um, you can mold it to your teeth uh, by boiling it and, um, you know, popping it in your mouth and having it sit there and you push it up. The instructions and in, on this product uh, are nowhere to be found. They say, hey, you can mold it to your teeth. OK, great. I'm looking at the box right now. It says um, three regular protection, two heavy duty mouth guards, uh, you know, and it says um, step one, Fremulin notch to prevent irritation. Step two, two different thicknesses for regular or heavy-duty protection with a durable what? bottom layer to prevent wear. Step three, moldable material to custom-fit any sized mouth. Uh, there are no instructions in this box. Yeah, that's three steps there's, of product description. There's Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so I was like, okay, well, how does one mold this? And so I had to go on to Amazon where I purchased this. And uh, I had to look at some of the comments and they were like, oh, yeah, you boil it in water. And like no one had an exact amount of time that you boil it in water. And I'm like, am I going to like burn my mouth? Just like, take a guess. Doing this like. <laughs> and so it was just really frustrating Ooh. to try to find, uh, you know, obviously I was already in pain and I was just trying to look for some relief. And um, I had to look elsewhere to find the answer that I was looking for. So that way I could get that relief. And it was. It's a little frustrating. I won't. I mean, anyone who's watching saw the product, but I mean, like, I'm not going to mention specific names. Anyway, do your do your research before you buy it. Even if you're in pain, like I was, don't just buy it on a whim because you think it'll relieve pain because it might cause you more uh, mental power than you want to exert. Anyway, that's <laughs> that's. Well, it's funny because like that specific type of product. So I did the same thing with my jujitsu mouth guards, and the instructions were awful. It was yeah. like, okay, boil it for how long? How long? Yeah, exactly. Just do it. And I would do it. I definitely burned the top of my roof of my mouth on one of my mouth guards because I was yeah. just like, I, was like, I don't know how long this needs. We'll give it enough time, I guess. I know, yeah. So, so what I ended up reading was like, hey, you bend, you you submerge it in, in the uh, boiling water until you see the corners start to turn. And I'm like, but... When it's in the water, it's hard to see. And, like, what does that mean, the Cornisher? And, like, so this is user-sourced, you know? And it's, like, and then you have about yeah. five to ten seconds to pop it in your mouth. And when you pop it in your mouth, you know, you push your lips up against it on one side and your tongue up against it on the other side and hold it there. Um, and I'm, like, it. I guess it worked. Uh, you know, it's two, two of them did not. I have two other rejects over here as a prop that did not work. Um, and 
one of them worked. So I don't know. I don't know, man. It's frustrating. I wish uh, one out of three. Yeah. It's a pretty good rating. <laughs> one out of three. <laughs> All right. What do you say we get into this uh, this this next thing? All right. Yes, this is the part of the show all about human factors news. This is where the instructions are going to be 100% clear for everyone listening, where we talk about everything related to the field of human factors. This could be anything from uh, we got some robotics in there this week and some AI uh, and how it interacts with humans. Blake, what do we got up first this week or only this week? So up first and only this week, as the instructions are meant to be very clear for the pod, is we have this rad-ass exoskeleton that uses AI to help you walk. So engineers at Canada's University of Waterloo are developing AI-powered exoskeleton legs that can walk autonomously. The system captures a user surrounding using a set of cameras and computer vision and deep learning algorithms then analyze the scene that the user is in to determine the best movements for upcoming terrain. The control approach in this model does not necessarily require human thought. So similar to autonomous cars, they can drive themselves. This company is actually... designing autonomous exoskeletons that can walk for themselves. The system adapts to its movements of a user based on the environment that it's taking in. And the device could eventually give people with impaired mobility more natural control systems than current exoskeletons, which are typically operated through smartphone apps or even joysticks. The researchers overcame these kinds of limitations by actually fitting the exoskeleton with wearable cameras and then injecting some AI algorithms into it. So, Nick, this is interesting in a lot of ways because I think it it opens my eyes to kind of current modes and methods for interacting with exoskeletons for people, but also the power of basically adding in, you know, quote-unquote AI into a exoskeleton. Yeah, so a couple things here. Um, my My first thought when I read this article... Oh, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. You can go back and watch The Office Hours for my first thought on it. <laughs> it's probably, this is cool. Uh, oh, as, wow. Yeah, that's a good one. As I thought about it, I was I was thinking about, um, and, and this is from the perspective of somebody who has had minimal uh, experience with exoskeletons. I mean, we went to Ergo X one time and it was a blast. Um, but, I, it, you know, I don't study them and it's not something that is in my wheelhouse. Uh, and so from, from my, that perspective... I'm just kind of laying that out there. When I read this and heard, oh, okay, this these AI systems are propelling a user forward that's in an exoskeleton, I thought, wow, can't that be dangerous if it doesn't match the user's intent? Um, oh, yeah. And it makes 100% sense for somebody who has no control of their legs. Um, but if it's augmenting... Uh, someone who uh, does have control of their legs, right? They might be able to... Um, I, I, I don't see full control for somebody who has uh, control of their own legs. Like, that's that's kind of where I'm at. And I know I'm getting hung up on this, but it, it comes back to danger, right? So in the case where somebody is paralyzed from the waist down, this autonomous system can take over for them. Great. For somebody who does have control, I can see a lesser sense of automation taking place here where it might augment their steps. So they are still walking forward, but it maybe senses uneven terrain and shifts your leg ever so slightly to the left. So that way you don't step on that banana peel or something, um, you know, as you're walking through a factory floor, um, you know, Jerry left their banana peel on the, on the floor and you don't want to slip on it. So the exoskeleton senses that and slightly sidesteps to the left to correct your stride. Um, but even I feel like that much might hurt somebody. Anyway, we're talking about the technology and how it interacts with people. And I think this is mainly for people who are immobile. So we, we can focus on that. But um, yeah, overall, very interesting. And I, I kind of like the uh, the comparison to the self-driving vehicle where it kind of takes in all this data from the external environment and um, uses that to, uh, you know, injects it with AI and, and it basically is on its way. Yeah, it's a really great analog for this, for sure. I think one th- one point that you bring up, because I, I do like where your head's at, because you're, you're thinking more outside of the box of the further applications, like beyond just like the immobile application, awesome, makes a lot of sense. But what if there's kind of a, a middle ground that we can reach for people who, you know, either, let's say one of your legs is, is like doesn't work as well anymore as you get older. And so having stuff like that that can handle... Um, 
based on like sensing in the environment handle actually giving you you know good recommendations of movement if you will and I, I wonder if that goes back to as this kind of product paradigm grows a little bit and they start taking into account you know thoughts about moving because I think the idea here is the reason that this is kind of over and above and the reason to put AI into this is is in the case of you being immobile you're not having to really think about any of the movements the the AI powered system can basically help you kind of plan out your movement without having to you know interface with your thoughts but I the so basically how it works is it's, it's really just it seems pretty simple and I'm probably oversimplifying how it actually is all put together, but basically by using this camera system that they attach, which I think is limited to a single camera, it's just taking in your entire environment to kind of almost map out like from the AI's perspective anyway, through I think computer vision, just understanding, okay, here's all the things that are possibly the, in the environment. This is really the direction we want to move. Um, one thing that I think, I thought was interesting is how well this might do in a very dynamic environment. Um, Cause for whatever reason, the graphics they presented look like the person's in a school, which they might be because it's for a university project. And so something like that, like where you have a lot of things that you would ha continuously be having to reassess um, in order to, you know, make the correct movements. I wonder how it kind of would stack up in that situation. Yeah. I, I think of factory floors where you're lifting heavy objects. Um, you know, where you have uh, an instance where um, you're not only interacting with other humans in exoskeleton suits that are moving objects from point A to point B, but you're moving with automated um, lifters that will grab something from this part of the warehouse and move it over here to be shipped out. Um, and so, you know, if you have an exoskeleton that can kind of self-correct or prevent you from uh, navigating in a certain direction, right? Can you imagine a lock on these things when, um, you know, you go to try to walk and it locks up on you but still stands you up straight? Um, when when a when a robot machine is coming down the way and it doesn't want to interfere with you and ev everything's connected, that kind of uh, technology is possible. It's kind of cool. Oh man, yeah, because that's <laughs> that's like the whole a whole ecosystem of technology working together. So beyond just your exoskeleton, like the the five different people on the work floors, exoskeletons all working together, plus robots that are within the space. Um, now, one thing I think that's probably worth mentioning here is it does seem like this is pretty pretty early on in the stages because it is a, a research or a university program's research because uh, it does seem like. A, Mainly the focus is the the AI and or the AI component that's working with ingesting the video and trying to figure out like, okay, what's all in the surrounding and is it accurate? doesn't seem like that quite yet the exoskeleton itself is fully functional. So that that's kind of the next stage of what they're going to try and do. So taking in the environment and now mapping that to motor functions that will eventually, I think, translate into little like little programs for the exoskeleton to execute depending on rough terrain, normal terrain, whatever it may be. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at this and they're specifically talking about like those with impaired mobility and yeah, I'm thinking further out than that, right? Where where do we go from from here? Um because they are like you said, very early on in this process. Um I I wonder what other kinds of bells and whistles we could add on to a system like this to make it even better. Right? I mean, the the and and so two thoughts. Let's take that one, but then also there's the other thought of what problem does this solve, right? Well, right now, those with limited mobility, they are, uh, they might have exoskeleton um, technology that could help them, but if it's powered via a smartphone, then they'd have to take out their smartphone and navigate using that, right? Press forward until it, you know, they desire to um, stop and then they would hit stop and then they would input another direction. So it's very input based. Whereas something like this, you could have like a general goal, like walk me to the store, uh, walk me to the corner store, and it would you know take you from point A to point B. Um, you'd arrive, and then that's when it would get a little interesting because like what do you do with the intent there? So again, I'm 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 trying to reiterate that's the problem that it's solving. It's solving the issue of the input, uh, uh, you know, being serial and um, having an input at all. Like I like I don't know how you control this thing. Do you just lean forward and have it, you know, kind of like a segue where it kind of senses that you want to go forward and 
because uh, that was that's what we're doing as we start to move forward is we're kind of falling forward and our body moves forward to catch it um and so it, uh i'm wondering if the you know, exoskeleton will do the same you start to fall forward it catches you and moves you forward if you lean in a direction maybe it goes that direction um i can kind of see that working uh but as this is very early on in the stages we need to look at what other bells and whistles like the intent reading of of uh the people who are actually utilizing this right how can we sense that intent of a of an operator and how do we understand what their intent is when navigating through something right there are certain things that we can account for with the system that's in place let's take that corner store example you walk in the store um and now you know the artificial intelligence systems on board the exoskeleton will prevent you from walking into you know a display or other people or items but how do you tell the system i want to go down this aisle and to stop about halfway because that's where the energy drinks are or you know whatever <laughs> i don't know if anyone with limited mobility would be having energy drinks but you never know yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think you bring up a good point, though, in going back towards the, the like, analog of... This is totally going to expose how little I know about how, like, Tesla's automation works. But I would imagine for some of it, you may be... Like, for instance, of the corner store, right? That seems like it makes sense and it's a possibility because I, I could imagine that if you, like, if you use a, an automated system in a car, if you were able to give it a a point direction like where you want to go then it like through you know basically just navigation through something like google maps it could probably figure out like okay this is a route that i'm going to take and based off of you know previous driving experience and the algorithms i'm built on i should be able to sense things around me and make decisions so for something like translating that here like a corner store trip or i'm going to class um, understanding the the base functions to get you from point a to point b based off of you know geolocation maybe that seems doable now i think when you're when you're getting more into some of the nuance of okay you've made it so i've made it to the classroom door now i have to go pick a chair what do i really do from here that i feel like is there's still kind of a gap for this research project where you may still have to pull out that smartphone to do do the rest of the journey um, but ultimately that's cut down a lot of kind of like cognitive work if you will and to some degree motor work of trying to navigate yourself an entire length or an entire kind of journey or whatever it may be. Yeah, let's talk about exactly where they're at in the process, right? So this article that we pulled was from the Next Web, but they're actually referencing another article from IEEE, uh, and this is called Simulation of Stand-to-Sit Biomechanics for Robot Robotic Exoskeletons and Prosthesis uh, with Energy Regeneration. So this is the article that they're referencing, um, and... Uh, basically, what they're testing in this study, the abstract basically says they're looking at sitting and standing movements um, with these lower limb kinematics, right? And and sort of these ground reaction forces. So that's kind of where they're at. They're not looking at even navigation at this point. I think they're, um, you know, I, I don't know if they linked to the wrong one or if uh, this is an earlier uh, study, but this is published on um, February 9th of this year. So fairly recently... Um, and I don't know if, you know, there's there's potentially more within this uh, study here. But, um, you know, from what I'm reading from the abstract, it looks like they're very, very earlier on. And this uh, article from the Next Web is almost speculating based on the thread of research um, that they're doing uh, on this project. Right. This is from researchers. Um, it looks like at the University of Waterloo. Uh, so, you know. I'd be curious to see exactly where they stand uh, in that lab with this um, with this effort, but at least the article that the next web here is referencing is it's it's very early on. Well, this is actually a little further along than I expected. I thought based on next next web's kind of interpretation of either the abstract or this full article from IEEE that they were really only focusing on basically the AI component and the and the computer vision interpretation, but it seems like there could be a lot more going on. So the the camera aspect, yes, but maybe that is that is more in play with helping somebody sit or stand or being able to detect in the environment there is a chair and now I want to sit or stand up from it. 
So that is a, that is a little bit more complex than I was even kind of interpreting this as. Uh, okay, I'm I'm looking up. Uh, I'm digging here live as we're <laughs> going through this article, but yeah, there's there's a um, there's so the most recent article was the sit to stand, but they had an original paper that was published in 2019, um, which was a finalist for a best paper award at IEEE. Um, yeah, and there there's cool. The, it was the conference on uh, rehabilitation robotics. So. Uh, the concept is there, and they're in the early phases of it. And um, right now, I'm actually on the NVIDIA developers website, and they have a video. I'm not going to show this just because I don't want to get DCMA'd, but um, I'll I'll send a link to you, Blake, so you can watch this on your own. Uh, but nice. there's, a, there's a video of somebody in an exoskeleton attempting to walk, and I'm, I'm not sure if the automated system here is... Um, also taking part, but it certainly looks that way um, based on the movement of the legs. Um, but yeah, I think I think it is earlier on in the process, but it sounds like it's even more developed than either of us um, think it is. Wow. Yeah, this is this is so much further along than I had assumed. Um, now it's it's kind of hard to tell, of course, from the video without like a little bit of narration because it does just seem like. To my naked eye, it looks like the guy is just kind of walking, um, and there is there looks like there is some like forcing going on from that like the exoskeleton and the actuators in it. Yeah. Uh, but that's kind of that's pretty insane. And there's it's again this is speculation looking at a, a YouTube video that's obviously made by I think the students themselves or the researchers themselves. But it looks like he's providing minimal effort for balance. Because he does have his hand out, like keeping himself like, on the rail, kind of upright. But it's not like you know death grip on the rail. Like this thing's just going to knock me over if I'm not, you know, holding really tight. It's basically like tapping against it. So that's that's another aspect that I didn't really think about. Is you know, from somebody that that either has always been immobile or has become immobile, the balancing aspect and how a exoskeleton would kind of account for and handle that could be a whole new sensation or something to relearn almost. Um, but it seems like for what I'm, who I'm assuming is an able-bodied person here, it looks like they're still able to manage it. And it looks like the machine, the machinery or exoskeletons doing a lot of the work in this case. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm now I'm looking at the NVIDIA side of things. So they are actually, uh, powering some of this AI that's going in there. Um, they're using Ooh. a Titan GPU for the neural network. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're talking about, um, control for, from the human operator standpoint here. Um, basically they, they say it won't necessarily require human thought. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think, you know, human thought can be intent in terms of the way your body is moving. Your that's human thought processes, controlling your body to move in a certain direction that would then tip off the AI, what you want to do. Um, but yeah, I, I think this story is just incredibly interesting. And, um, one of those stories that, uh, I, I really wish we could talk to Chris Reed again. Um, cause he's, he's one of those, uh, the ergo, the ergo X, well, he's the, uh, president elect of HFES now, but I'd, I'd love to pick his brain about these, um, these, uh, these exoskeletons because we we nerded out about him at ergo uh, uh, about uh, exoskeletons at ergo x a couple years ago absolutely yeah it would be awesome to get because i could imagine his take with a like a heavy background in exoskeletons and really helping develop the foremost kind of uh what do you call it conference around it with ergo x i mean then thinking about, or from his perspective, understanding how the impact of integrating AI and different kind of like, you know, deep learning algorithms into using something like this would probably be more interesting from his perspective because he's understood kind of the status quo and what it's been like to even put any kind of smarts into any exoskeletons that have existed and what potential this really has. It's, it's really amazing that, I mean, it's not amazing. It's, it's, cool that nvidia is involved in this um and i'm glad you kind of poked around a little bit and did a little extra digging while we were on stream yeah it's it's live research live due diligence right in the moment all right uh for uh for everyone just hang around for a minute we're going to be taking a quick break and then uh, we'll be back to see what's going on in the human factors community right after this 
Human Factors Cast strives to bring you the best in human factors chatter every week. We pack news, interviews, reviews, and overall fun conversations into each and every product that we put our seal of approval on. But we can't do it without you. You see, the Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running this show come from the listeners. That's why we're giving back to our supporters on Patreon, now more than ever. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like 24-7 access to our exclusive Human Factors Cast Slack channel, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Cast Infinite, a Patreon-only podcast where the topic is Human Factors, etc. We're always updating our rewards, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you all, and remember, it depends. All right, and we're back. Uh, I just want to thank all of our patrons this week for selecting our topic. Uh, you just heard the Patreon commercial, and thank you to our friends over at the Next Web for our news stories this week. If you want to follow along, we do post those links to the original articles in our Slack as we find them. So, uh, you know, join us over there for more discussion. I'm also sourcing them on Tuesdays. Uh, we're doing Human Factors Cast office hours over on Twitch. So come join me over there. Um, you know, uh, a huge thank you, uh, as always, to our patrons. Um, there's going to be some exciting news about our Patreon next week for episode 200. So please be uh, there to join us for that. Uh, and especially our honorary Human Factors cast staff, Michelle Tripp. Uh, patrons like you keep our show running. Uh, and, and sincerely, thank you from the bottom of our heart for your continued support. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time on Patreon because... Next week is going to be where it's at if you're if you're listening. Anyway, uh, all right, let's go ahead and get switch gears and get into this next part of the show. We like to call. It came from. It came from. Yes, it came from Reddit this week. Uh, this is the part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you topics the uh, community is talking about. Uh, our patrons do get front of the line to this, although we have no patrons this week uh, with any. Um, questions but that's okay we have a weekly q a over there if any of them want their questions answered on the show uh blake i think uh we're gonna make this a little bit shorter of an episode this week um just because man my jaw is killing me um so i was actually gonna say and i meant to throw this in the chat would you rather me read these um no it's okay i can i can power through um all right as long as you can as long as you can lead the post show <laughs> i think that will be the uh That'll be the party. Yeah. Yeah. No, we'll be okay. Um, I, I do want to, uh, yeah. So, so I think we're shooting for like 45 minutes today. Let's do that. So, um, let's take a couple of these. So I'm thinking, uh, yeah, let's, let's talk about these ones. So we actually pulled these ones for last week, but didn't quite get to them. So let's pull them. Uh, this one comes from realistic attack on the user experience subreddit. They go on to ask, uh, how are you conducting user interviews in this pandemic era? Hello, all. I'm very new to UX or human factors, whatever. And right now I'm trying to create some side projects to hone my design thinking skills. I wanted to learn how I can go about doing user research remotely. I made use of Survey Tandem for our user surveys, but I'm wondering whether that's sufficient. Do you use Zoom to contact users and have a virtual face-to-face -face interview? Where do I find willing participants? Thanks in advance. Blake. It'll definitely depend, right? But I, I would say... I did that. So there's a lot of things out here for this. Um, there's so many tools that exist for you to, to help you do this that I think there's even, you know web services you can pay for that can help you find participants and things like that. I would say if it's a if it's a side project, you're better off kind of using what's at your disposal versus like if you really are trying to pay for research up front to give you like a springboard. Uh, it's all going to depend on what you're doing. I think one thing that I found successful is using, you know, mediums like Teams or whatever you have access to that's like that. I've even, like, I know some people have done stuff through Discord as well. Uh, but for me, it's been interesting. So I've taught a lot of people over the past, you know, year, almost year and a couple of months now. Uh, like, how do you adapt in a COVID era for doing some user research methods, whether it's doing, you know, over-the-shoulder usability testing, uh, doing U UX interviews, and a lot of the stuff, the methodology itself stays the same. It's just kind of adapting to the toolkit and the virtual environment. Um, I think one thing you're just really going to want to know is who you're targeting and how can you get a hold of them. If you're, you know, working with a business, you may have better access to 
consumers or customers or anything like that. Whereas if you don't, you're kind of almost going to have to grill a crowdfund your your participants. You and one way that I've I've had success and I've seen success with people that I work with, it this is people that I work with being like students from Design Lab or personal projects that I work on is using social media to help you kind of crowdfund or find people that would be willing to even take your survey, interview with you, interact with your prototype, whatever it may be. Um, so again, it's kind of just using the tools that you have at your disposal and going from there because the method really stays the same. Now, Nick, I know you've had a lot of experience this, with this in your professional life recently. Um, how's it kind of impacted you and what kind of workarounds have you found? Yeah, so there's a couple questions here that I want to address. There's one, how do I get users for the thing that I'm trying to research? Uh, and that's a very different question from how do I conduct the interview itself uh and that's a very different question from um what methods and metrics do i use in a remote environment um and i think they're all separate but they're all related so i'm going to tackle those three and that's kind of how i'm i'm seeing it right so there's there's the questions of how do i get users generally i think the short answer is you go looking and um as a user researcher on your project, you should have a good idea of who your users are, what you know demographics you're looking for. Um, if it's a broad project, you know I've been fortunate enough to work on very specific projects. Uh, right now, I'm using I'm, I'm working on a, a website where you know there's only a couple users of this product, um, and you know they're they're only coming to this for a specific purpose, and so uh, you know. I've built a relationship with the people that know the people that use the website. And so I've leveraged that relationship to say, Hey, we need people to do this usability study kind of there's, there's a whole political and uh, sort of interesting game that you have to play with showing your value to the people. So that way they understand what you do. So that way they can reach out to the people that you need to do the thing that you do to explain to the people that you have those relationships with what the people that they got you to do for the thing you get my point here right it's it's all a symbiotic relationship everyone's helping everyone so if you can say hey look if you can get me users i can get you this information and so if you explain to them um what types of people you're looking for what you're going to do and as long as you're transparent with everything uh that's that's a good way to recruit now if you're just doing blind recruiting that's something that I don't really have a whole lot of uh, experience with. Blind recruiting um, can be tricky. Uh, I would certainly work on like pre-screening things uh, to make sure that they are within the um, demographic that you are looking for. Right, If you post on Craigslist or something, it's going to be a hit and miss on who you get. Uh, it also depends on what funds you have available to, to sort of... Um, compensate these participants for right if it's a personal project you might want to use friends and family that are going to do you a favor but if it's you know if it's a fully funded thing you might want to reach out into the general public uh, look for people who are using similar websites that type of thing that's that's the user question then there's the question of well how do i actually conduct this study and one method that i have taken is use what's available to you and use what is going to be widely accessible to a lot of people. Um, the tool that I use, we're, we're on the Microsoft suite. So, uh, you know, Microsoft has a tool called Forms, but there's, you know, and that's a survey builder, but you can do this with SurveyMonkey. You can do this with Google Forms. You can do this, um, you know, with whatever tool you feel comfortable with, but you need some sort of data collection receptacle and, and something that you can send to them. Now, I learned a valuable lesson. You don't send this to them before the actual study. You send this to them in the moment. So how does this work? Well, you can uh, first set up, uh, contact them via email. And this is very long-winded, and I promise it'll be worth it for anyone who's having difficulty with this. But you, you contact them via email, explain who you are, explain what you're doing, explain what is going to be asked of them. Um, I would highly recommend you record your sessions through whatever means possible. Most um, video conferencing softwares have the ability to record. Like I said, I'm on Microsoft. We use Teams. Teams has the ability to record. Um, so I am recording their screen. I'm having them share their screen with me so that way I can look over their shoulder as they're navigating through this website. 
Um, and uh, I can understand where if you're working on sensitive information, that might not necessarily be possible. But in cases where it is possible, try to do that. There are also other um, things you can do, but whatever you do, just make sure you're recording and make sure they're aware that you're recording. Go over the consent form verbatim with them, you know, make sure that they understand exactly what you're going through uh, and trying to get. You can grab really valuable things with um, a screen recording. You can get time on task post hoc. You can get um, completion rate post hoc. You can uh, go back and look at comments and, and play back specific examples of people struggling for your client um, that are very telling in some cases. And so um, in terms of what things I collect, I, I collect kind of the basics, right? I, especially remote. I go time on task, completion rate, system usability, demographics, interview. And the interview is really just kind of a, a wrap up, like uh, a follow-up section where I can go and drill down and say, hey, you were doing this thing on this part of the website. Can you explain why you did that? Um, or, you know, what are your needs or, you know, all that stuff. Um, but it's, it's kind of open-ended. Um, and then the last part I kind of just answered, which is the, the methods and metrics. Those are the methods and metrics that I use. Um, kind of a long-winded way to go about um, this question of how to conduct user interviews in a pandemic era. And I went even a step further and talked about usability studies. But I think it's a matter of what, you, what tools you use. And uh, one more note on that, right? Tools, you need to be able to, especially if you're working with the general public, they need to be accessible. So write up like a detailed report of what you're expecting of them. Say, hey, just wanted to touch base before the usability study. What you're going to do is you're actually going to click on this link to go to Microsoft Teams. From there, we'll walk through the rest. But don't provide too much information because then they'll get lost. They won't actually get to Teams in the first place. Um, and there are some weird things with video conferencing software that may need to be stated, right? Like Teams, you have to click on another button and the more you can spell it out step by step for them, the less error that you're going to have, especially in a pandemic era where everyone's remote and everyone's on their computers and, you know, stuff like that. Um, I feel like I'm missing one other point that I wanted to touch on, uh, but walk them through it step by step. That's the usability study in terms of interviews. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. But anyway, <laughs> any other thoughts on that one, Blake, before... We continue on. Yeah, man, you crushed it. I think that that was like some really solid advice for people to walk away from from this for sure. So excellent job, especially Woo. when you're not feeling grand. Yeah, uh, that actually kind of loosened up my jaw. So we're going to keep going. Um, <laughs> here we go. We're going to do this next one here. Uh, what? I feel like we just answered this question, but I'm going to say it anyway. What tools do you use for remote UX work collaboration with UX coworkers or human factors work collaboration with human factors coworkers? Uh, this is via ExoFile on the user experience subreddit. Hi, guys. Lots of us had uh, to quickly switch to a more remote working means of working for research, designing, testing, collaborating, etc. While I'm sure we have a general idea of how it is to work externally with stakeholders, how about internally? What software or applications do you use for remote human factors work internally with other human factors coworkers? Um, primarily in internal communications, such as Slack, Teams, email, um, human factors activities, and or analysis, such as Bureau, Mural, mural Docs, uh, documentation and info, Office 365, internal tools, how to keep track of info from meetings, analysis, insights, digital design work, Figma, Sketch, Photoshop, Illustrator. Why have you chosen these instead of others? And what about it makes your workflow smoother with other UX coworkers? Uh, I'm currently also researching this, so anything would be appreciated. Might be interesting for you to get an insight with what actual UXers or human factors are doing. Blake, that is uh, kind of a different answer than I just did. How? What do you use to collaborate with other people internally? Yeah, I'm. Lo I love this question because I'm. I'm a sucker for tools, and it's kind of fun because like I have a. So I have total freedom in my mentoring UX design job, and then I have like some restricted control aspects to my normal nine to five because like we can't use all of the cool cloud tools like Figma. So for like internal stuff for the nine to five job, right, where I really focus on a lot more on the UI design and prototype and development stuff, uh, that is kind of re restricted to Adobe tools. So I focus on XD, 
mainly because I can create you know, robust design systems, share components and bits with my internal teams if I have another designer that I'm working with and I can export them to the rest of my team really easily. Um, because we're a, you know, we're an Adobe company, if you will, and we use that stuff. I have a lot of my teammates actually that maybe don't do design, download the program anyway, so that we can work collaboratively on designs and we can do design reviews remotely and things like that. Uh, there's also just to like, this is funny, trying to plug a plugin for um, XD that kind of stops me from having to use anything else like Mural or Miro is a, a plugin called Whiteboard, which basically allows you to, as you would imagine, create whiteboards, but it also comes with templates that are automatically generated in XD for user flows and task flows, as well as different, um, you know, sprint activities like you know do like sticky note activities and things like that so that's been fun for just work collaboration stuff so brainstorming across teams and things like that um in terms of my other job where i have more freedom with design lab i do everything through figma and google meet um my like side business is don't panic ux and so i have a business account with google so i get to you know just shoot meeting requests and use Google Meet no problem and it doesn't really, I don't really have any issues or hang ups hang ups with it but the best thing about collaboration over the internet for design is Figma um, because if I either if I'm doing something live trying to show somebody it's really really easy and quick to be able to like shoot me a link to your to your file and I can hop in there and either leave comments or do stuff live also it's nice with the commenting feature cuz I can get more detailed inside of a design file and leave examples behind for people to explore uh, versus where I was kind of like only focusing on using the design lab platform and leaving comments back and forth there. I couldn't really always show how to do something like how to add a transparent gradient to help you, you know, make text pop off in an image and stuff like that. So it definitely depends on what job I'm in, but those are a couple of tools that I find myself using and are really invaluable to kind of the remote work side of things for me. That's a great answer, Blake. I think for me, it largely is a, uh, it's an artifact of what I'm allowed to use. Um, and those constraints help me use those effectively. Um, like I mentioned before, where I'm at right now, it's Microsoft base, right? So I have to use things like Microsoft Forms. I've never used Microsoft Forms before this. It worked out okay. I think, um, you know, it forced me to, to ask questions in a different way because there was some limited functionality to say something like Google, uh, Google Forms. Um, but yeah, bottom line here is that... Uh, First off, use what's available to you and learn to use those tools if you're planning to be there for a long time because that's the bread and butter and you have to sort of meet that resistance head on. You have to make sure that you're comfortable with the tools that are available to you. Now, if this is something where you have complete control, uh, pun intended, Blake, do you get it? Do you get it? Complete control. <laughs> yeah. Do you get it? Uh, so a callback for everybody call, else. Callback for everyone. It's in the it's in the banter. Um, if you do have complete control over the tools that you use, and um, you know, then I think uh, use whatever you're comfortable with. And I know that's a pretty cop out answer, but there's a a lot of programs that offer free trials, and you know, you can't learn a full program, but you can get a sense of what each program has to offer by using those things. Um, you know, for us, we actually use Slack here at the podcast to communicate not only internally between Blake and myself and everyone else behind the scenes who's actually helping us with the show, uh, but everyone, you know, that we invite into our Slack, we have a Human Factors Cast community that we communicate with. So this is both internal and external, and it's a great way for us to manage our work. Um, we're also using the Google Suite, right? And it integrates with Slack. And so... Uh, when when we're doing podcast stuff, it's through the Google Suite, um, and we've learned to harness these tools to help us with creating the podcast and um, doing some of these fun things, right? So it's like use the tools that are available to you. Uh, we could switch to a different platform, but at this point, we're built in and we've built a lot of fun things in it. So I don't know if we'd ever want to switch, but anyway, we can have another conversation in the post show, Blake. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Mine's, mine's a pretty cop-out answer where it's like use what's available to you. And if you have control over what you have, then it's a little harder. 
than than I like the idea that if the what you said, if you have complete control of just like getting your hands dirty and a bunch of different tools, are we getting royalties from them? We've mentioned it like (laughs) seventeen. I hope so, but like the that would be so great just to like not really have to worry about it and just dive into any workflow that works for you and works for your clients and works for like the people you're you're working with. Um, so that'd be a lot of fun to get into. All right, let's do one more. I'm, I'm feeling good about this jaw. We're good. Uh, all right, this one, this last one here is uh, from uh, Jasselex on the user experience subreddit. We had a user experience subreddit night, but I think these are all really great questions. So this one here um, can easily be applied to human factors as well. Has networking ever really worked? They go on to write, I went out for dinner uh, for the very first time this year and overheard a gentleman say to his table he lost his job last month. So a person at his table told him, oh, you have to reach out. Uh, should I do this in voice? Oh, you have to reach out to people and network to find you a, your next job. <clears throat> but has this <laughs> ever really worked? I will say in my own experience, I have received some information that has helped me, but never have I spoken to someone to get a really great job, especially in UX or human factors. Blake, has networking worked for you? And how did it work for you? I mean, networking got me my first job for sure. And now I will be fully transparent that I'm probably overselling how much networking did because as much as I don't like to admit it, I interview pretty well. Um, and so that plays up to my advantage, but I feel like the, the network that I built from grad school definitely got me a in for my first internship and interview and some of my first, a couple of my first jobs. So without that network being built in, uh, I would, I probably wouldn't have, you know, worked at places like NASA or worked at my current job. Like I, I wouldn't have gotten any of those opportunities. Also, Networking for me has had more benefits than just getting me a job. Um, like uh, Nick, you you probably remember this. A while ago, I was the marketing director for UXPALA, and we I don't know if we were joking about this in the pre-show or what, but I mean that's where I learned a lot of design. I don't have a design background um, of any kind. I'm very self-taught in both the design world, the UX world, and you know in the programming world too. And it was kind of through networking and volunteering my time that I learned a lot from peers and people I wouldn't have had access to otherwise. Um, and that also led to freelance work that I definitely would not have gotten without without any kind of networking. Uh, I don't know if this counts as like direct networking, but when Nick and I used to have the studio, I had it in a co-working space. And so just by having my cards outside of my door, I would have people, you know, leave me notes on my door or call me or, you know, DM me on Instagram and ask me about what UX was or what I did with the space. And that led to a couple of freelance jobs. So it, I think it probably, Nick, you're going to like reach the internet and slap me, but it definitely depends because I could totally see from somebody's point of view that maybe networking isn't the only thing that's going to get them a job. Um, and it's probably not the only thing, but I, I feel like from my experience, what I've seen with helping other people kind of transition careers, helping get a squad of people around you that are basically looking out for your best interests can help tremendously when you need a new job or when you want to do that first side hustle gig or whatever it might be. But Nick, what's what's your experience been from the networking side? Yeah, great. Oh, and by the way, having a podcast is a really good oh, yeah. way to not just network but build like a personal brand around. Yeah, that's a, that's um, a great way. Start a podcast. Um and but seriously, if anyone's listening and like wants to start a podcast or you know, reach out to us. We we would be happy to share our resources with you. We're not like a comp- competitive bunch. We think that a different uh, take on it would be really fun to see uh, and listen to. Um, so in terms of networking, yes, I think, Blake, you're you're right. I think the way this sounds is that they are very much looking at it from a how is this going to get me a job perspective? And it's, it's much deeper than that. Um, you know, I can say... Uh, with certainty that there are a handful of people that I could reach out to if, you know, I woke up tomorrow tomorrow morning and my job was gone, I could reach out to those people and I would be able to feel good about my chances at securing a job. 
Let me put it that way. And that's because I've networked with them. It's because I know who they are. It's because they know what my skill set is. And how did I do that? I did that through networking. Um, talking about personal experience. Um, I had a very similar experience to you, Blake, where my first job was uh, not necessarily my first like real job out of school was not necessarily networking, although I knew some people that knew some people um, and that kind of helped uh, ease things a little bit. Um, and so, you know, from from that perspective, I wouldn't say necessarily it was the networking that got me the job, but it certainly um was another point of conversation to say, oh, yes, I, I worked in so-and-so's lab um, and you worked with them on this thing. Oh, yeah, what was that like? And then, you know, we can have that common point of reference. Um, and then uh, I will say, you know, I was I was headhunted for one of my most recent jobs um, because someone knew my skill set and because they wanted me to work with them. And, uh, you know, that that worked out. So... Yes, I think absolutely networking works. Um, I don't know how much more I can say. I feel like this. I feel like this person must either have had a really bad experience with networking, or they just haven't had somebody that reached out to them, or they haven't reached out to them, the other person, people yet about networking. Anyway, I think uh, yes, it does work. And um, you know, if if you all need help networking, we have a whole Slack for you. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, you made an important point there, or I, I see it as a point that may be overlooked, um, but the work that you do with other people is networking to me. Yeah. it It's because you, that reputation and, like you said, Nick, like you got headhunted for another job because of past work that you'd done with other people. Like, that's, that's networking, but it's not like the normal, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to talk to somebody to meet up or I'm cold emailing somebody or hitting them up in their LinkedIn DMs. It's, you know, doing good work and being a professional and letting other people see that. Um, so keep it, keeping that in mind as well is important. Like the people you've worked with in the past, though, that is like a sense of networking. Now you can do it negatively or positively, right? Like if you didn't do the best job or you didn't have the best interactions with some particular coworkers or whatever. Um, so I think like broadening your perspective of what networking is, maybe what this person needs. Cause I could totally see that like it, it could be that, that lady sitting that you did the voice for sitting at the table with you telling you that you need to network to get a job. Um, but there's a, there, I think there's more to it than that. You need to get a job. You need to network Blake, get a network, get a network. It's, <laughs> Build your network. Call Charter <laughs> and build a network. Kobe spreader. <laughs> All right. That's going to be it for today, everyone. Let us know what you guys think of the story this week. You can join the discussion on our Slack or follow us all over our social channels at H-Factors Podcast. Uh, if you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple things you can do. One, you can leave us a review on your podcast medium of choice. That is free for you to do and really helps us out. Two, you can let a colleague know. Uh, that also really helps us out from that word of mouth. Three, uh, if you have the financial means and want to help contribute to the show in your own way, uh, you can consider supporting us on Patreon. We have a lot of stuff over there. And like I said, there's going to be some exciting announcements next week. As uh, you know, as always, links to all our socials and our website can be found in the description of this episode. I want to thank Mr. Blake Arnstorff for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about how they can control something completely? Oh, you guys can completely control things by hitting me up in the Human Factors Cast Slack, or you can reach out to me across social media at Don't Panic UX. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me across social media at Nick underscore Rome, and we are both streaming on Twitch for office hours. Uh, so you can find us there. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it, it depends. depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. 
These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.